Welcome to the 194th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with R.S. Belcher, author of The Six-Gun Tarot and The Shotgun Arcana. Stay tuned for the interview. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is R.S. Belcher, author of The Six-Gun Tarot and The Shotgun Arcana, which was just published. Rod, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's very nice to be here. Great. Well, can I have you read a page or two from your new novel, The Shotgun Arcana? I would be happy to. I'm probably going to trip over it a little bit, so uh, bear with me. But uh, yeah, I'll be glad to. This is uh, the second chapter. Uh, it's called Judgment. Uh, I'll read a couple of pages. It's sort of an introduction to uh, the first chapter is a little bit of a flashback. The second chapter uh, is sort of introducing you to the town of Golgotha, which is pretty much a very major character in, in both the books. Uh, judgment. 23 years later, November 18th, 1870, Nevada. The moon was a bullet hole in the sable night, bleeding ghost light across the wasteland of the 40-mile desert. The 40-mile was part of the price you paid for the West. That price was often paid in blood and tears, and yet they still came. Headed West, headed just a little ways further out, away from safety and rules and meaningless lives and anonymous deaths. They were lured by promises of gold and silver. Others came for the visions of a new world, a new life in a land big enough for everyone to have dreams. Some came hacked and hewn, inside or out, from the war, from the madness and the carnage, because they had nowhere else to go. They all headed west, where luck and fortune still flowed like milk and honey, and where your fate wasn't set in stone. You could be a hero, a villain, a self-made man, or you could vanish without a trace, erasing the person you once were. But first there was the crossing, there was the 40 mile, and other places just like it. Many met the crucible of the desert and failed. The floor of the wastes were littered with the bleached bones and artifacts of, lost, of lives lost in the attempt. A soul would need to be a craze, crazier than a snake in the sun to leave behind civilization and kin, home and hearth, to travel for months in a wagon or on horseback, to a land still more myth than reality, full of gunslingers and savages, outlaws and madmen, sickness, wild animals, and spirit-crushing loneliness. And still they came. Hope is a powerful drug. The moonlight washed onto the shores of the desolate, murderous land and found at the very edge of the 40-mile a town. Huddled in the cradle between two small mountains, the town waited. She waited for those strong enough to endure the initiation of the 40-mile. She waited for those seeking solace or redemption or anonymity, the blessed and the damned. Golgotha waited with open arms, embracing the night. On the rooftops of Golgotha, two shadows pursued a third across the dove's roost, a house of ill repute tucked away from the sanctity of Main Street behind Golgotha's largest saloon, the Paradise Falls. One of the pursuers began to close the gap, and the other shouted out in frustration and redoubled his efforts. Mutt! Hey, Mutt! Jim Negri shouted, panting as he sprinted as fast as he could across the uneven and partly unstable roof of the cat house. Dang it, Mutt! I ain't got no four-legged kin in my blood. Wait for me! Jim was 16, his sand-colored hair whipped in the desert's night cold air, cold wind. His eyes were bright, but also old. He had his father's six-gun holstered on his belt and a silver deputy star pinned to his vest. A small leather pouch tied by a leather cord around his neck bumped and jumped against his chest. The pouch held his, uh, held his dead father's jade eye. 
Jim's boots thudded like hammers as he gave all he could to catch up with his partner. Jim's partner was a blur, thin as a whip and twice as fast. His hair was longer than Jim's, falling to his shoulders, oily and black. His battered leather Stetson had fallen off his head and jumped against his back, held on by a stampede cord. The man was an Indian, with a thin, pointy nose that showed signs of having been broken a time or two. The thick black eyebrows above his crooked nose grew together, and his narrow face was marred with scars and pockmarks. His teeth were yellow and crooked, but his incisors were straight and prominent. He carried a pistol strapped to one thigh, a huge knife strapped to the other, and like Jim, he wore the silver star of a deputy. His people denied him a name. He called himself Mutt. Come on, lazy britches, Mutt shouted back over his shoulder, grinning. I'm only using two legs, and besides, I'm tired of chasing this damn thing all over town. I'm of a mind to catch it tonight. The shadowy figure they pursued was small, perhaps four feet tall, and was moving at remarkable speeds with an odd gait more reminiscent of a penguin's waddle than a man running. The pursued approached the edge of the dove's roost, turned back to regard Mutt and Jim with glowing red eyes possessed of pupils of green fire. The thing hissed at the deputies and then leapt, almost flew, across the gap between the dove's roost and the roof of the boarding house next door, run by Mr. and Mrs. Scuddy. The thing spread its arms as it jumped and wing-like membranes under each arm extended to allow it to catch the wind, night wind and glide to the next roof. Its taloned feet hit the roof and it scampered to disappear into the darkness again. It's got wings, Jim muttered to himself. Of course it has wings. Like hell, I'm letting some flying whatever the hell that is get the better of me, Mutt yelled. Mutt, don't, Jim shouted, but it was too late. Mutt increased his speed and launched himself across the gap between the roofs with a yip and a yell that would have put a gray coat rebel to shame. He hit the other roof, rolled, and came up running and laughing. Ah, oh, damn it, Jim muttered as he picked up speed. He reached the edge of the roof, jumping for all he was worth. He landed on the roof of the boarding house barely, his feet scraping and slipping on the weathered and cracked wooden shingles, almost falling backwards and down three stories to the floor of the narrow alley below. Jim steadied himself. He saw some movement in the darkness of the alleyway. Two figures, cloaked by night, shifting, grappling roughly. He thought he heard a woman's cry out, of, out, cry out just for an instant. Jim paused, peering down into the now silent alley, struggling to pierce the shadows, straining to hear. He looked up to call out to Mutt, but the deputy and the creature were nearing the edge of the boarding house roof, both fully engaged in the pursuit. The creature had veered toward the southern side of the roof and sprung out again, its weird arm wings spread. It landed easily on the roof of the Elysium Hotel and scuttled, waddled off at a breakneck speed, hissing and growling. Mutt was already preparing to spring after it, his thin legs churning and his arms pistoning as he prepared to leap. Come on, boy, you're going to miss all the fun, Mutt shouted, and then howled as he flew through the air. Mutt landed in a crouch, popped up, and kept running. Jim gave one last glimpse into the narrow, seemingly empty alley. All he could hear now was the rancorous banter, uh, sorry, raucous, my bad, raucous banter of the Dove's Roost uh, clients and ladies. The roost was always noisy at night, most likely nothing to fret over. Still, something tugged at him. He heard Mutt whoop again as he pursued the monster. The alley would have to wait. Jim sprinted after Mutt and the creature. He tried not to think about the fall and the impact if he slipped or fell. He wondered how his late Pa would have, would have handled this, but that thought was of little use to him now. Pa would never have gotten himself into this kind of fool mess in the first place. Jim laughed at the thought and flung himself into space, chasing after his friend and the thing they both hunted.
And that's probably a good place to, to stop. Great. Well, well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Shotgun Arcana yet, how would you describe it? Um, <laughs> it is, um, it's my second book. Uh, it is a sequel to my first book with six gun, uh, tarot. And, um, it's basically, uh, they're weird Western stories. Uh, they're set in a small town at the edge of this desert, which is a, was a real, uh, trail for folks heading West, the, the 40 mile desert in Nevada. Um, Golgotha is a town where my, my goal when I wrote both of these books was to make it a town where everyone had a story or a secret, um, supernatural forces seem to, uh, gather in Golgotha, uh, quite often. Um, and, uh, those forces, uh, seem to attract people to Golgotha that are the best kind of people and the worst kind of people. Um, and the reason why uh, Golgotha is like this beacon for sort of paranormal uh, events and, and entities and, and, and for really sort of saints and, and, and sinners uh, is explained in the first book, in Six Gun Tarot. Uh, the second book picks up about uh, Shotgun Arcana, the one that just came out, which incidentally just released today in, uh, in uh, the UK uh, through Titan Books and... Uh, I'm very excited about that and uh, has a very cool cover. The Titan Company uh, publishers have used a different cover than the, the American cover. Uh, and it has a very kind of a traditional tarot card uh, feel to it. But uh, basically, uh, in the Shotgun Arcana, we're picking up a year after the events of the first book. Uh, however, I did try to write them both so that you could read one or the other and not have to feel like you're lost or need a lot of backstory to explain what's going on. But um, the town of Golgotha is experiencing a boom. Uh, the silver mine that had been closed in the first book has been reopened. You have folks coming in, pouring into town, and uh, uh, the town has literally doubled in size in the past year. And uh, you start having some crimes occur, some murders of uh, uh, what they would call um, – uh, working girls, prostitutes, uh, and uh, that uh, is is one of the main uh, story arcs that's that's happening. Is uh, the, the the girls are are being hunted down and murdered in very horrific ways. Uh, the sheriff and his deputies, uh, Sheriff John High uh, Father, uh, who is a gentleman who has a reputation for not being able to be killed. Um, whether it's true or not, he, he cultivates it because it's good for business. Um, and uh, his two deputies, um, but, uh, who you met briefly in the little part I read there, who um, has a, a, an interesting parentage. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's related to uh, the uh, Native American spirit Coyote. Uh, he's one of Coyote's sons, actually. And uh, then Jim Negri, the, the young boy there, Jim is sort of our gateway character from, from both books. He's a relatively normal guy. Um, he is on the run uh, for something that happened, uh, to him back home in West Virginia and made his way to Golgotha. A lot of folks in Jim's situation seem to find their way to Golgotha. And, uh, the three of them are, uh, trying to find who's killing these women and why. Um, and there's another, uh, story arc that, uh, pretty much encompasses the whole town that involves a, uh, a, a, cult of uh, basically serial killers, cannibalistic serial killers, uh, who are, 
uh, drawn to Golgotha by this uh, this artifact that they're seeking out. That uh, Golgotha seems to hold a lot of kind of uh, occult treasures and knowledge, and uh, this one uh, has a history. In the first chapter, actually, you find out it has something to do with the Donner Party uh, about twenty years earlier, and um, and then the, this group uh, comes is coming to town, and it's sort of a high noon. Uh, kind of a kind of a feel to it. Sort of, uh, you know, the showdown's coming. You know, there's there, something's going to have to be resolved. These very very bad, dangerous people are coming to Golgotha, and it's literally an army of them um, against a couple of uh, you know the sheriff and his deputies and a couple of the folks in in town who uh, who tend to rise to the occasion to to help defend their town. They did it in the first book, and they do it again in their second. So it's um, it is a western. Uh, I've tried very hard to make it as uh, if you're expecting a typical Western, I'm hoping you'll be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've tried to make it, uh, it's, it, it bends genres quite a bit. There's horror, there is Western it's romance. Um, I tend to throw a little, I don't mean to, but it seems to just kind of happen the way I throw a little philosophy in there. Um, and I try to have a lot of fun. I, that's one of my big goals when I'm writing any, anything I'm trying to sell, uh, but anything I want someone else to read, I want it to be fun for them as it is for me. So uh, hopefully uh, this will be a good adventure. Um, I try to put a lot of work into my characters. Uh, while they may seem on the surface somewhat stereotypical, the kind of crotchety deputy, the square-jawed sheriff, and that sort of thing, all of them have secrets and they have backstory that um, that make them uh, different than what you expect them to be. And that's my goal. So I hope folks will come out and check it out. Um, I would be very thankful if you give it a read. Uh, I would love to get feedback from people who do read. Please let me know what you think, good or bad. Uh, either way, I'm, I'm happy to get it. Um, but that's pretty much my, my summary of, of Shotgun. Great, great. Well, well, do you remember, was there an initial idea that inspired you to write the Shotgun Arcana in the first book, The Six-Gun Tarot? Actually, it kind of it kind of the the initial idea started probably over a decade before uh, Six Gun was ever published. Um, I had this idea of of doing sort of a existential horror western kind of thing. I wanted to do something that dealt with like the isolation of these little towns in the middle of nowhere. And I was a big fan of uh, uh, some of the, the well, a lot of the Clint Eastwood westerns, you know, Pale Rider and. Uh, I'm trying to think what the one is uh, where he, he tells the guy to come in and paint the town red. Uh, High Plains Drifter, um, which w- High Plains Drifter blew me away because it's the first time I'd ever seen kind of a supernatural, very subtle supernatural element worked into a western, and I, I really fell in love with that idea. Um, and uh, so I, I was kicking around wanting to do something with a, a kind of a horror western was my initial idea, and I had I had tinkered around with it. I'd, I'd written some. You know, I had some of my characters in mind. I'd, I'd kick some things around. I've written a few chapters. Um, initially, the sheriff was supposed to be the the kind of the hero and put, you know the, the, your gateway character, your protagonist, and uh, and it just left me really flat. So I, I had all this stuff kind of set in there, and I put it away and got on with life. I wrote a whole other novel uh, that never sold, <laughs> and uh, for and, good reason. And, and what what was the genre of that novel? Uh, that was urban fantasy, and I have not entirely like like any good parent. I've not entirely given up on my child. I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I may try to resurrect it at some point. I have used scraps and bits of it from in other things, uh, but it was an urban fantasy. Uh, it was called uh, Crusaders Blues, and it was a uh, basically a uh, 
a modern uh, incarnation of a, of a secret order of, of knights who uh, uh, were fighting this, this monstrous kind of uh, very nebulous organization that was abducting children. Uh, and I had this very weird dream. That's where the idea for the novel came from. It was this weird dream where it had to do with uh, all the children on uh, on milk cartons and and on little posters at Walmart and things like that. And it's all these missing kids. And and somehow or other in my brain, it it percolated that there was some you know horrible force kind of taking all of these children. It wasn't just like you know one petty little evil person here and one petty little evil person there. It was some massive thing directing all of these petty little evil people. And uh, I haven't given up on it. I've actually used some uh, some characters out of it, and some of the ideas for some of the things that I'm writing now that Tor has uh, Tor's purchased. Um, and uh, I've still kind of woven that universe into the stuff I'm writing uh, as far as urban fantasy goes. So maybe it'll pop up one day. But I tried writing it. Um, I was very happy with it. It got rejected a few times, and I was. Uh, we, we had just had, uh, I'm divorced now, but at the time my, my wife, my well, ex-wife, but my wife and I, uh, had just had our first child and, um, that's a busy time for you. So, um, I basically kind of finished it, which I was very happy about, but I put it on the, you know, put it away in a drawer and said, well, along with all these other notes and ideas for stuff, including, uh, what would eventually become six gun tarot and, um, jump ahead several years. And I managed to be very fortunate to win uh, the grand prize in a uh, Simon and Schuster Star Trek contest um, for a uh, thing called Strange New Worlds, which was they would put up this anthology series um, where they would invite people who are not professional writers to submit. You won uh, your the, the prizes, you know, where you know they publish your work. You get a you get a you know a legit uh, credit uh, for for writing something, and uh, they pay you a very good uh, rate for the story. And um, that was something I wrote just because I'd never written a Star Trek story before. And I love Star Trek. And I thought, you know, I'll give it a try and see, see what I can do. And um, as, as almost like a writing exercise, I'll write a genre piece in somebody else's world and see how it goes. And I had kind of given up. I didn't think I was going to have anything happen with it. And I got a, a phone call a few days after, uh, uh, New Year's, I guess this would have been probably 2006, um, from uh, one of the editors with Simon & Schuster saying that I had not just gotten into the anthology, but I won the grand prize of the anthology, which uh, made me very happy and uh, got me very excited. And I had been uh, making a living as a freelance writer for several years, uh, uh, basically writing for magazines, newspapers, and things like that. And um, making a living at it. And it, it really got me excited that, you know, I, you know, I had been trying to you know sell some short stories and, you know, you know, and you get a little discouraged when it's like, you know, you, after a hard day of, of work and you come home and there's a rejection letter waiting for you. So it, it kind of got me jazzed up to, to get into it again. And I was going, you know what, if I can win this contest and I can get in this book, I can write, I can get a novel written. So I had a bunch of different ideas, and, and the one that really stuck with me the most over the years was this freaky little western. So I started working on the Six Gun Tarot, uh, and that's that's really where the idea came from. Is it it had been floating around for a while, and and actually I think the time it took to kind of get it get to a place where I could write it helped it a whole lot because um, um, 
I, I changed a lot of the I changed a lot of the stuff in the book. I mean, the core of it is still the same idea, the same premise I, I wanted, but but almost everything else changed, and uh, and for the and for the better, I think. <laughs> so that's uh, that's that's when the idea kind of popped up in my head. That's great. Well, well, prior to prior to working on that urban fantasy, and prior to um, writing the the um, Star Trek short story, um, had you written other short stories? And, and what was kind of your what was kind of your in, uh, entree into writing fiction? How did you first get interested in it? Oh, um, to be really honest, I have wanted to storytell since I was as as soon as I could really kind of like articulate. Um, I used to, you know, I grew up, uh, with my, my father passed away when I was very young. My mom, bless her heart, uh, raised my sister and I by herself. She was a working mother. And, uh, like in the summertime I would go and go and stay with her at work. I didn't really have an option there. And, um, I was a huge science fiction fantasy kid. I, I was a, I think I, I came out of the womb as a geek and, um, <laughs> very proud of that. Very happy about that too. Cause um, I just, one of my earliest fondest memories is sitting on my mom's lap and she's reading an Avengers comic to me. And, uh, it just, she was very, always very, even if she didn't understand this stuff, she was very encouraging of, of me being into the things I was into and being creative. So I would write these little comic books. I'd draw pictures and, and write dialogue and come up with stories on loose leaf notebook paper. And then I'd take a little bread tie and loop it through the hole in the loose leaf paper. And my mom was a beautician. She owned her own beauty shop. And I would walk out and I would uh, show these off to my mom and I'd show them off to uh, her customers. And they were like Star Wars comics and Star Trek and uh, Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, just anything I was into. And um, the ladies would sometimes I would put I, was, I started putting like a little price on the on the on the cover you know like a little comics code authority seal and price twenty five cents and these ladies bless their hearts would would buy these things for twenty five cents so I've been a paid writer since I was about nine years old which is kind of <laughs> kind of awesome um, but I I just I always love storytelling I'd love I've, you know these great mythological characters and I'd always want to know what happens next or uh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened and um, I uh, I was very fortunate. I had a cousin. Uh, his name was Gary Weddle. Uh, Gary was very supportive of me. He was always very encouraging. A lot of times when you have a young kid, it's it's uh, and they get excited about something. Sometimes it's hard to match that enthusiasm or to to properly cultivate that enthusiasm. And uh, Gary did that. And um, so I started uh, writing stories. I had a uh, you know, my mom, bless her heart, when I turned 13, she, she bought me a typewriter for my birthday. And, uh, I was, that was the greatest present I think I could ever get. And I thought, I thanked her so many times for that over the years. So I wrote, um, and actually the earliest things I wrote would, and this was before there really was an urban fantasy genre, uh, at least not in the mainstream. I was writing stuff about, uh, people in the modern day, uh, encountering bizarre supernatural stuff and trying to cope with it. And, and, um, uh, and and in the case of the the nasty supernatural stuff, trying to you know keep it from hurting other people, um, I've still got those stories locked away in a trunk somewhere, and I hope they <laughs> never ever see the light of day because they're pretty horrible. But um, I loved them. I love doing it, and uh, um, you know, life kind of gets in the way a lot of times of of of, uh, and also to be honest, it's it it's very hard to make a living as a writer. It's not. 
it's not an easy thing to, you know, if you, if you hit big and hit that jackpot, uh, you know, yay. Uh, and, and I've, I have made a living as a writer through a lot of hard work and a lot of clients. I mean, you, if you, if you really want to do it and you're determined to do it, you'll make it happen. You may never hit the big time, but you're, you'll, you'll, you'll write what you want to write and it'll make you happy. And that's, that's good. And I, I did a lot of other things before I came home to writing and I'm very glad I did come home to writing. I it was, we were expecting, um, our second child and, um, uh, I had, you know, I had kind of you know, tinkered at writing. I'd written this manuscript that nothing came of it. And I, I, you know, messed around some, but I needed to make a living at it. Something we were in a position where I, you know, we had two kids and the business that we owned had closed. So it was like, I needed to make some money and I really wanted to write and I, and I wanted to, to become a better writer. So, um, I went into nonfiction journalism and, uh, and, uh, my ex-wife, to her credit, was very supportive. She was like, as long as we can pay the bills, <laughs> um, you go for it. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And um, uh, I, I did. I wrote for several newspapers. I was editor of a newspaper. Wrote for a lot of magazines, including, um, if you've ever heard of Starlog magazine. Yes. I actually, I actually did an article for Starlog. It was one of my first um, published magazine articles, and I was on the moon. It was so cool. I got to do an interview with David Drake, and... Uh, and it was a big piece they did in there. I was very happy with it. Um, but I know I'm kind of meandering a little bit. But basically, I I wanted to write since I was a very young kid. And it kept popping up in my life. It was like any time I would have a little spare time, I'd be tinkering with some story or some storytelling idea that I had. And it just kept coming back to me and coming back to me. And I'm I'm thankful for the time as a, as a nonfiction writer because I really think that helped me with my skill. Um and I learn something new every day. I, I'm still learning so much about about the craft of writing, and I, I always will. I think it's not something that you know that you don't ever stop learning something about. But um, the journalism part of it, I think, helped me with clarity, brevity, and uh, and and basically conveying information quite a bit. And I'm in I'm in debt to the folks who uh, let me write for them and were nice enough to pay me for that. And um, I, uh, but I've been wanting to do it since I was a kid and it just, I'm really, I'm, I still am waiting to wake up and find out this isn't real. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 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 given your, given your writing journey and, um, you know, leading up to the publication of the six gun Tarot and now the shotgun Arcana, what, what advice would you have for someone who may be listening, who kind of was in your place? 10 years ago and would like to have their own novels or short stories published. What, what advice would you offer? Um, I've actually spoken to a few, uh, classes. There's a, uh, Southwestern Virginia writers conference down here that they are very nice. They asked me to speak the last couple of years and, uh, um, get asked this a lot. And I, I really looking back at my own experience and I'm actually looking at the experience I'm having today. Um, never give up. <laughs> never surrender. Never give up. No, <laughs> never, never give up. Uh, you have to be, um, basically two parts prize fighter to every one part writer. You have to be able to be like Rocky and get knocked down. There's nothing worse than coming home after working some job that you really can't stand for practically no money and you schlub home and it's raining and you're cold and you're tired and you still have a you know at least maybe a couple pages worth of manuscript that you want to bang out, 
and you open your mailbox and there's a rejection letter. It it will it will break you if you let it. You can't let it break you. You if you're writing you write because you love it and because it's just in your skull and you want to get it out. Um, if you get published, that's great. But if you go into it and that's your sole goal, it it will you'll you'll be you'll be unhappy and there's no reason to be unhappy. If you can write stories and you love them and they make you happy and you share them with other people and they like them and it makes them happy, you you're doing it right. Just if you want to be published and everybody wants to be published and I'd be a hypocrite if I said it isn't awesome to get published. But um but if you want to go that route, then you have to be able to take uh criticism, you have to be able to take rejection and you're going to get a hell of a lot more of that than you're ever going to get of of, of praise. I mean, it, it, if you're lucky, at some point it balances out a little <laughs> bit. But um, but you're you know you're you just um, uh, very briefly. Um, uh, one of the anecdotes I, I I kind of throw out here is I had a dear friend, um, and he uh, received uh, we we had a little writers workshop we were doing for a while. And he had written this story, and he actually got the nerve up to send it to Weird Tales, which is, you know, a, a huge, legendary magazine. So many, you know, just fantasy, horror, science fiction gods got their start in uh, in Weird mm-hmm. Tales. And he gets back this, like, six or seven page handwritten letter from the editor. And it's talking about how, well, we're not going to buy your story. But here's the things I really liked about your story. And then here are the criticisms I have about it. And here's what I think you might want to change or try writing it this way instead of this way. And at the end, it has the words that every writer longs to hear. Why don't you try this again and send it back to me? And that's, you know, editors, you know, have so much coming at them, especially from any kind of venue that publishes science fiction, fantasy, horror stuff. You, you've got a, sh- a slush pile. You've got tons and tons and tons. So to take time out of your day to write a letter like that and to say and, – and, you know, and, and resubmitting is usually a taboo. You, know, you do that normally, and they're just like, oh, God, it's this guy again. But when they invite you to do it, it was – I danced a jig for him. I was like, this is great. This is better. You know, this is almost as good as an acceptance letter, and it's a damn sight better than just a you – know, this is the nicest rejection letter you're ever going to get. And <laughs> Um, he never resubmitted it. Oh. He never, he never resubmitted it. And part of it was just because, in my opinion, I, I think it was because it, they hadn't accepted it in the first place. It was in his mind, he saw huge rejection letter, tiny little, this is the good things about it. And some people you have to, if you're going to do that for a living, if you're going to do anything where you're sticking yourself, you know, you're opening your guts up, opening your chest up and saying, Hey, Come take a look in here. Peek around some. You have to be ready for someone to have some cold fingers every once in a while and kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of jab you the wrong way. And um, that's that's my biggest advice: is, is don't give up and don't get discouraged. You're going to get discouraged, but when that happens, um, try to try to summon something out of that discouragement and then take one more step. Just keep going. If you write up. You know, and I know, you know, when you're working two or three jobs, I know this. You're working a bunch of jobs and you're dog tired and you gotta take care of the kids and get them up in the morning and one of them's sick and you know, there's the power bill is gonna be disconnected and you know, you've got all this stuff. Just 
write one paragraph. Just write one paragraph, and it'll build, and it'll build. Don't give up. If you really want it, don't give up, because um, you'll end up with something beautiful. And even if it never, ever sees publication, and these days you can publish yourself. Um, I, I, I recommend you get yourself a really good editor. <laughs> and, you know, yes. uh, basically, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's self-published that probably should not be out there. But, you know, there's a whole new route for people now. You can self-publish, but if you want to go traditional publishing, it can happen. You just have to be determined, and you have to just have that endurance. Endurance is the most important thing for so much in life, and uh, and I really think it, it, that's my best advice: is just don't give up. If you really want it, great. don't give up. Um, that's great advice. So, are there novels or nonfiction books that you've read in the last year or two that that made an impact on you and that you would recommend? Wow, let me see. Actually, I had to. I I got asked this like last week, I think, um, <laughs> uh, which is cool. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good question. It makes me, it makes me think a little bit. Um, I tend to read a lot, uh, based on what I'm working on. Um, I do have one recommendation. I should have a couple of recommendations. Um, I've really been enjoying, um, the thief taker series by DB Jackson. Uh, gentleman's name is David Coe. He is a wonderful writer. Uh, and I've really enjoyed his books. I think he's up to like four in the series right now. Um, it is, it's a detective story. Uh, it's a fantasy. It's set in uh, pre-revolutionary war uh, Boston in a world where magic works. And his main character is a thief taker, which was a job that is kind of part private investigator, part leg breaker, and part bounty hunter. <laughs> you could, <laughs> if, if, you were a, if you were a gentleman and someone had done you wrong, you could employ a thief taker to... Uh, to seek them out and, and act as your agent of retribution. And it was completely legal. So uh, it's a great series. I think people should check it out and uh, can't say enough nice things about it. Another book I read uh, this last year uh, was from a, a full disclosure, dear friend of mine. Well, David's a friend of mine too, but uh, this is another local. Uh, he, he lives in the same town I do, uh, Roanoke, Virginia. A gentleman by the name of Mike Allen uh, had his first novel come out. It's called The Blackfire Concerto. Um, if you are a big fan of, uh, say, 70s, uh, Roger Zelazny or Michael Moorcock, um, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a, it's a very dark fantasy uh, set in a very bizarre world um, and very cool. Uh, and uh, I, I loved it. It's a great first novel. It's a great novel. Um, it is uh, creepy and scary. And I think he's working on a second one now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I would highly recommend that. Uh, also, uh, a friend of mine and another great writer, uh, I think this was his first book as well, is uh, Brian Scott Stavely, uh, The uh, Emperor's Blades. Uh, that's an excellent book. Um, it's, uh, it reminds me a little, it, it's, it's got a little bit of a uh, low fantasy kind of feel to it. Um, and he threw in some very cool kind of cultures, um, it's it's got just some neat stuff. It's basically got almost like a kind of a uh, a Zen monastery kind of uh, kind of aspect to it. At one point, uh, they have another part where I'm reading about these uh, guys training uh, for this uh, this kind of elite cadre of warriors. Uh, they fly on giant birds, and uh, as I'm reading about their training, I suddenly realize this is Navy SEAL training they're going through. <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically they're not running around with a telephone pole, but it's something close to that. Yeah, um, yeah. And and it's it's just he he took a lot of things 
that are sort of modern, not only modern aesthetics, but non It's not the kind of thing you would normally see in a, in a high fantasy. Right, and, right. Um, and there's a lot of politics in it, which I think will appeal to folks who enjoy things like, say, Game of Thrones and stuff like that. Um, I really recommend, I mean, I, I read um, Mike's book and Scott's book to do a, to a blurb for him. And um, uh, I was so delighted. It was just, it, it's really fun. Especially, I love first books. I, I really like reading the first books from someone because you see so many things um, that that are kind of like uh, sort of intrinsic to their to their writing voice in them, and uh, it's really cool to. I would highly recommend those. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Most of the stuff I've been reading right now has been about one um, percenter bikers. And uh, uh, urban myths from truck drivers and stuff like that. That <laughs> um, has to do with thing, the thing I'm writing right now for for tour. Um, and uh, so, I mean, they're good books. They're good read. I read a book called Killer on the Road, which is uh, a very interesting book about um, the development of the interstate highway system and how it relates to um, to serial killers. And um, it's it's really a fascinating book. It kind of hit a lot of the the things that I had been curious about, and uh, and like I said again, I'm, uh, this is all stuff related to um, to Brotherhood of the Wheel, which is what I'm writing right now for tour. And so that's that's pretty much. I think it, that's my reading list is basically serial sure, killers sure. and uh, Mike has cannibals in his book. And uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> so 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 um, the book that you just mentioned is that a new novel or is that a novella? What what what's that that you're working on? Um, well, I have. Uh, I have this book called Nightwise that comes out in August of 2015. Nightwise is basically um, it is urban fantasy, but I tried to make it more almost like a uh, kind of like a dark fantasy noir kind of thing. It's um, it's it's uh, it's a detective story. Well, it's it's a it's a supernatural detective story um, and a little bit of a caper book. Um, it's uh, it's very NC-17 <laughs> and. Uh, um, but I'm very proud of it, and it, it's uh, it's something I'm very looking. I'm looking forward to seeing what people think of it. And there was a character in Nightwise that pops up for just a few minutes. And actually, full disclosure, I think you your listeners will be the first to know this is this character actually shows up in the first novel that I never got published. Um, he was a, he's a, a minor character. He's in like a chapter or two in, the, in that novel from a million years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, he shows up in a chapter in Nightwise. Um, and then my editor or my, uh, pardon me, my agent, Lucy Ann Diver, Lucy Ann loved that character. She thought he was really cool for the idea behind him was very cool. And, uh, and said, could you write some more about this guy? And I was like, yeah, I could, oh yeah, I could write a bunch about this. This is <laughs> fun. So, um, Lucy Ann did her wonderful magical thing that she does. And she, uh, talked with the good folks at tour and they were interested in maybe doing a series so uh, they have purchased the first book in what will hopefully be a series. Uh, it's called The Brotherhood of the Wheel. It is um, basically the, 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 the basic premise of it is uh, the original commission of the Knights Templar uh, before they got rich and famous and, and had like a VH1 behind the music story and you know, got, got persecuted and, and you know, fell to their excesses and all that other stuff. Um, the very kind of humble origins – of the uh, the Knights Templar War, they were to guard the uh, roadways through the Holy Land. They were to protect uh, pilgrims and merchants, so that you know commerce could happen and 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 uh, scholars and and 
and the faithful could could move between the different uh, locations in the Holy Land. Um, the whole premise of my my book was after I did a little reading on the Templars oh, like a million years ago, and thought that was really a neat you know neat idea that they were out there kind of patrolling the roads. Is I I have basically a small sort of a, a a surviving offshoot of the Knights Templar uh, that are called the Brethren, who are one percenter bikers and uh, long haul truck drivers. Uh, that old couple you see riding around in the Winnebago, uh, they might be brethren. Uh, and uh, <laughs> um, the caravanners, the folks who travel from you know, state to state, and, and the families, the kind of traditional families that travel from state to state in, in RVs and stuff like that. Um, a lot of them, uh, state troopers, a lot of them are members of the brethren. And their job is to keep the highways, you know, it's their original job, keep the, the passageways of civilization safe so that people can move from place to place safely. And, of course, to make that really exciting and make it, you know, fantasy, um, the highway system, for some mysterious reason that you will discover if you read along in the books, um, attracts these horrific entities, uh, human and inhuman, uh, at the fringes of it that, that can tend to prey on the people who wander the highways in America. So you have the wandering hitchhiker killers and, and the serial murderers who use the highways as, as abduction sites and dumping sites. And you have uh, all forms of, of kind of monsters, all, basically all the kind of urban myths that you heard surrounding the highway. Um, those things are real. And uh, these these guys are out there, you know, protecting civilization at the kind of the kind of the greasy edges. And uh, I have to admit, it has been an enormous amount of fun to write. I'm finishing up the first uh, manuscript now. It uh, will be published by Tor in 2016, and I'm very excited to be doing it. And I'm hoping that if it is well received, that uh, there'll be some more uh, Brotherhood books. That would be kind of awesome. So, uh, but cool. yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I I really enjoy. Um, Southern Gothic stuff, and I really kind of enjoy sort of, I don't know, um, I don't really know what to call it, kind of redneck mysticism. <laughs> I really kind of, <laughs> kind of like that stuff a lot. So yeah. uh, it, it tends to be what I write about at, at the present time. I got, I got some other things I'm kicking around, but uh, sure. but this seems to be my my uh, cause celeb right now. So sure. Well, if someone is interested in in listening to this interview and wants to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you online? Um, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm always happy to talk to folks. I love to hear from folks. Um, like I said, you read my stuff and you like it or don't like it either way. I love to hear from you. Um, you can reach me. I, my, my website is going through a little bit of a metamorphosis right now. So, um, I'm not going to give you a website address because it's changing. Okay. But, um, I can give you, I'm on Facebook under author RS Belcher. Uh, there's also a page currently for uh, the Six Gun Tarot and for um, the Shotgun Arcana on Facebook. Uh, I have a Twitter account, which is also author R.S. Belcher. Uh, and uh, let's see, I think that's – and my and my agent's constantly you know, threatening me with, with death and dismemberment if I don't Twitter more, tweet more. But uh, it's, it's, I'm an old guy, and it takes me a while to figure out how to use this stuff. Sure. So. Um, as, as, as evidenced by my headphones not working when we were trying to get this interview yeah. going. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with R.S. Belcher, author of The Six-Gun Tarot, and his latest novel is The Shotgun Arcana. Both books are in bookstores now, so grab a copy or buy the ebook. And Rod, thanks for doing this interview. 
Oh, Jeff, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.